Hey everybody, Jonathan Rogers here. Before we get started, I wanted to mention my new six-week online creative writing course called Writing with Caspian. Together we'll read through Prince Caspian and figure out how C.S. Lewis works his particular kind of magic and how we can apply some of his principles and techniques to our own writing. It starts on February 2nd. You can find out more at thehabit.co slash Caspian. How can I not search for beauty in the midst of ugliness, despair, and violence? That is the cross. That's the centrality of the cross, that beauty and violence collided and beauty won. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. The first time I heard Ruth Naomi Floyd speak and sing was at Hutchmoot, the Rabbit Room's annual conference. It was a talk called Music for the Broken, and if you search at rabbitroom.com, you can hear it in its entirety. I recommend that you do. Anyway, the way she talked about brokenness and beauty in the African-American spiritual tradition, and the way she sang, oh, the way she sang, it was obvious that hers was a voice that we all needed to hear. If you don't already know Ruth Naomi Floyd's work, you're in for a treat. If you do, well, I know you're looking forward to this conversation all the more. Ruth Naomi Floyd, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Hello, Jonathan Rogers. <laughs> it's great to be here. I am really glad this worked out. You know, the first time I heard you speak was at Hutchmoot in 2019. You and Mark Mennell uh, gave just a, a lovely talk. Um, and uh, I remember something you were talking about. And you'll have to help me out here because it's been a while. But sure. you have an ancestor um, who was an enslaved African in, in, the, in the United States. Where, where was she, by the way? Thomasville, the, Georgia. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, um, and she had a, an unusually hard life. Um, but you talk about that she always um, brought a little flower or a leaf. Or she, she was always looking for beauty that she brought in. And I, I think maybe you had a, you had a, a great-grandmother who, who knew her and passed this on to you. I may be getting this completely wrong, so forgive me if I'm No, not at all. Um, I'm blessed that my father's grandmother, my great-grandmother, lived to be 109 years old. (laughs) And she was was the youngest of my great-great-grandmother, who was an enslaved African in America. Um, At six feet, two inches tall, she was (laughs) taller than any other human around. Wow. But unfortunately, to break her in every way, as an example to the other slaves and communities, um, they made her become the mule Mm. that pulled uh, the plow. So from sunup to sundown, this magnificent, handsome woman pulled the plow. And it was it didn't make sense because it wasn't productive, right? The right. mule could have done it much faster and more efficiently. By the time she was twenty eight years old, her spine was in the shape of an S, mm. and she died. But um, my great grandmother doesn't remember much. One of the things she remembers from her siblings telling her that on the way. Her mother, the woman, the human being, the life 
made in the image of God, walked from that place of dehumanization, the plow, to her cabin, and on the way, search for beauty. She, whether it's a pine cone, a blade of grass, a twig, a flower, whatever it was, she picked it up and put it on a saucer on the butcher's block, which served as the table. Mm. Also served as the table. And she would say, beauty is everywhere. You just have to look for it. I believe in my heart that if her life had been different, she would have been an artist. Sounds like it. And I believe that she was an artist. And she created as much as she was able to under the awful, awful genocidal, you know, system of American slavery. Um, I love that that's instilled in me. Mm-hmm. My great-grandmother, her daughter, would say, why is this young child tied to my apron strings? I would not leave her alone. I begged to go over her house. She taught me how to dress a table, how to cook, um, how to churn butter, how to churn ice cream, how to roll collard greens. Um, But I just had the sense that there was a lot of history. And I I loved her. She was my favorite human being in the world. And finally, grandmother. Yeah. So finally, she just said, okay, I have a twin. And she allowed me to stay (laughs) with her, which meant get to work. Um, But but I'm grateful for her. I dress my table in honor of her. Uh I create meals with no preservatives, not all the time, but most of the time (laughs) in honor of her. Um, But it was her mother who created um, within me of my great great grandmother finally telling me the story after decades of big, not decades, but years. It felt like decades. I think I was about 13 when I finally begged her again. And she said she would tell me about her mother. And that's, that's the memory she remembered. And that's why I'm a chaser of beauty. I love seeing beauty. Beauty is everywhere. You just have to look for it. Yeah. And it's found most profoundly in the ordinary things that we walk by every day. Yeah. She also, one thing, had a beautiful, by all counts, low contralto voice. And she would sing all the time. And the only words they remembered that she would sing was, one day my children's children. But she didn't use the Queen's English. She would say, one day my children's children. Mm-hmm. C-H-I-L-L-E-N, which is, you know, a vernacular yeah. of... of of language um, in blackness. One day my children's children, one day my children's children. So I've written a song. Um, they said she never finished that line. I asked my great-grandmother, why, did, why didn't she finish the line? Oh, wow. And I remember my great-grandmother just looked at me and said, how could she? Hmm. Yeah. That's such an, uh, the, the, this looking for beauty. I mean, you're, you're, that's hope or yeah. something or something a whole lot like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as she was, you know, in, in that life. Yeah. Still recognizing. I don't think I could have looked for beauty being made a mule. I mean, we had a, a, a coroner go back, given the diet, given her size, given where she was, the climate, what they thought she probably ate the temperature in Thomasville, Georgia. 
the weight of the straps. Imagine mm-hmm. putting on those straps every morning, taking them off and pulling. In some ways, I wish I didn't know the report, but it was excruciating death. What happens is when the human body is trying to pull that plow that was used at that time, your organs start to shift, mm. but it's very slowly. Um, and it's excruciating, horrific death. I asked her daughter, my grandmother, if she remembered anything. And she said all she remembered was that her mother, grandmother Hadley, you know, um, remembers as a child being taken out of the cabin to another cabin. And she lived in that cabin for a long time. But every now and then she could hear her mom crying and screaming. It was a terrible, slow death. Mm. But this is the same woman whose organs were shifting. I, she felt that. She knew that. You know your body. Mm-hmm. From that walk would still search for beauty. Yeah. How can I not search for beauty in the midst of ugliness, despair, and violence? Mm. And more importantly, how can we not? That is the cross. That's the centrality of the cross, that beauty and violence collided and beauty won. Beauty one, you said? Yeah. 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 Um, so, Ruth, you're, a, you're an activist, right? You actively seek to make the world a better place. Yes. Uh, you've been involved in HIV AIDS activism, I know, and through the years um, and other, other kinds of activism. But so I, I want to think about, on the one hand, looking for beauty is a, that's a, uh, you may not like, you may, may correct my terminology here, but that's passive, that's receptive, that's paying attention, which is a very different posture than activism. Sure, the tension, living, struggling, failing, enduring, surviving, um, all of that in the midst of the tension is necessary. Um, it's, it's what we call the already, but not yet. You know, yeah. it's that dance that I just read um, that Mark talks about of that, that distance of darkness to light. And so many writers mm-hmm. of uh, the rabbit room talk about that tension, you know, between really, um, I think what Helena said, wrote about, and I hope I'm right. Oh, my memory's long. It's, I'll charge it to my age. I love that I can say that now. I'm old. I'm old. I can't remember. Um, but I think it was Helena. Helena said, um, between, you know, Advent and, and Lent, that tension. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I view myself as an emancipatory artist. I am a tar- I, I am an, an emancipatory artist. So, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but ultimately it means a seeker of truth and beauty. And so searching for that truth and searching for beauty and being willing to stand up for truth and be willing to seek after beauty and share it at all costs. And so that's activism. What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to love others as yourself? I can 
translate that and communicate that in artistic language with photography and music. But it also means what does it mean when I'm not creating, when I'm not actively creating something in the process of making? What does that look like? What does that seem like? And it means um, being willing uh, to, to do both for me. It's, I'm called to do that. I can't run from it. I can't hide from it. I've never wanted to, but it's absolutely what I'm called to. What do you do when you, you can, we can paint the answers with our paintbrush. We can sing the answer with the notes. We can compose. We can dance the answers. You know, we can sculpt the answers. But sometimes it means when you're, what can, how can you do that outside of the artistic language? And that's what activism is. That's what protest is. I love when I was on a panel and, and one of the guys knew this and he was seeing activism and protest as, you know, rage and destruction. Yeah. And so I tried so many different ways to get him to understand. Finally, I was like, what denomination are you from? He's like, Protestant. I was like, okay. I was like, what, what denomination again? He's like, Protestant. <laughs> and I was like, and then I said, let me get this straight. And I repeated his definition of protest. And then I said, now what denomination? And he was like, oh, I'm like, come on. You know, you know, it goes to where, you know, some forms of pro- protest are, are sanitized. Some forms of protest are romanticized and some um, types of protest are vilified. And so we really need to examine what that word means and reclaim it as Christians in a powerful way. We have a stunning, courageous, beautiful legacy of protest. Uh. Luther, the door, you know, (laughs) like we need to, um, we need to, if we need to reclaim it, yes, but we need to be able to use that lens through different circumstances and and different historical events and tell the truth. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, I think protest at its at its heart, and, and, and when it's when it's you know at its best, is recognize the, the difference between the status quo and reality. Yeah, right? and saying there's something truer than what you see right around you. Right, and um, and there are, you know there are people who would prefer to to keep things the way they are. Right. Um, rather than pursue what's ultimately true and real, and, and again to, to your your uh, your ancestor that you yeah. spoke of, here's a woman who looked around and said, "This is, you know, here's the status quo." But but that beauty that she collected is a reminder of what's yeah. truer. Uh, we have um, the matriarch of our family is in her late nineties and. Uh, you have some long-lived relatives. Yeah, sadly, I think I have my mother's genes, but um, <laughs> but um, but she's she is going to uh, send that along to me. That same butcher block oh, to me wow. as a gift, which I'm sure will be controversial. Uh, hopefully, none of my family members are listening. We'll be listening to this podcast. But she said, "You, you just you're the one who really understands her the most and has been most." curious and wanting to know her so you get the butcher block i will weep with joy and sadness because it means our matriarch is gone but it also means that i have something tangible i have a crochet you know i have some other things but 
I'll have this butcher block where she plays Speedy every day and it'll mm-hmm. be a convicting and inspiring reminder to, that will continue to push me to, mm-hmm. to seek for beauty. And what's at what's cost? You're like, really? This, you know, this is a justice issue. To 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 take justice and extract that and try and extract that from beauty. To, you know, just have beauty of pretty things, to not tell the truth, to not have truth and beauty aligned. So what's mm-hmm. what's the risk? What's the big deal about beauty? the cost of eternity, the gospel. Can you say one more sentence about that? I go back to the centrality of the cross. You know, I, I look at steps leading up to the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane is such a powerful place. I, I, I grew up in the Ramble era, right? So for me as a little kid at Holy Thursday, I did not like Holy Thursday. To me, I just felt like... Jesus, this is your Rambo moment. Mm, yeah. like, you're just de- defy the empire and sit on the throne. And I, uh, I did not like the image of, of, of Jesus asking and, and, and praying. And, and, and then to me, the worst thing was he's asking if he has to drink the bitter cup. Like, isn't that why you came? Like, I just didn't understand it as, you know, eight, nine-year-old and Holy Thursday was confusing. Um, So I detached that. And until the first time of brokenness in my life, Uh, I didn't know if I knew to call it that, but I knew what it felt like. uh, And I understood the Garden of Gethsemane. And I understood that by him asking the question, he knew the answer to. He was the answer. So it's not only that he knew the answer, he was the answer, (laughs) but he still asked it. And so in our despair moments, in our dark moments, he gave us the right to ask the question, but he also helps us to say, you have to get up, Mm. drink of that bitter cup and follow me to the cross through Mm. Good Friday, through Saturday, the silence of that darkness until joy. And so that dance between unspeakable joy and total despair, that dichotomy, which blackness in America never shies away from it in our food, in our dance, in our music, in our clothes, in our fashion, in our language, in everything. It's that dance between total despair to unspeakable joy. But how could it not, given our history in this country? So, yeah, what's that cost of not searching for beauty, not chasing beauty, not embracing beauty, not trying to capture it in a beautiful way, um, is eternity. Because if you turn away from the most beautiful one who became battered and slain and slaughtered for us, so that in turn we can become beautiful. That's what it's cost. Eternity. Wow. You uh, you described yourself as an emancipatory artist, and you said that means a lot of different things. Um, can you? What are some other things you mean by the phrase the emancipatory 
artists? Why, why do you use that adjective emancipatory? Because hopefully if I am seeking and chasing after truth and beauty, truth and beauty emancipates us. It, it frees us. So freedom is, is absolutely tied to truth and beauty, that freedom to create, that freedom to believe in who we are, to believe that we are Imago Dei, to, um, to believe in from identity to how we live our life, to what it means to be human, what it means to love, what it means to relinquish, what it means to suffer, what it means to birth something, what it means to bury things, what it means to live, breathe, and ultimately for all of us, unless we hear that trumpet in the sky, which I'm pretty sure will be Jasmine's Gabriel. Um, <laughs> you know what it means to die, the ultimate relinquishment. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, that's why I use that word, because truth and beauty, but also freedom. And it's, um, it's a hard title to have. If I've run away from anything, it's, I've run away from that. Not what it means and the nuances and the layers. I've been present. I've pushed forward with that. But that title, and it took a good friend of mine to really call me on the carpet about that, if you will. Huh. And so now I, I've embraced it. What does a non-emancipatory artist look like? Or art that that's is not a, emancipatory? That's a great question. Um, I want to be really careful here. Okay. Um, can I give an analogy? Because sure. I, I know I have artists who are not emancipatory and yet their, their work is still valued and it's still okay. beautiful and it's still strong. So I want to be careful. I would say it like this. I think the tension lies in, for me, I was on a panel. I'll answer your question with the short story. Okay. Um, I was on a panel with uh, artists and we were talking and, and what became clear at the end was that those artists who only create they have no other vocation. They do nothing else as a sense of resource or a sense of, you know, money needed to create. They're, they don't have a side gig. They don't have anything mm-hmm. else. They're able to, whether through patriotism, you know, of having a patron or because of whatever, um, they're able to create full time. And that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> but what became clear to me pretty quickly was that that was elitism. That was the top. That's what everyone wanted to be. So at the end, I didn't say anything. And the older I get, I'm learning to delay response and listen <laughs> more deeply. And at the end, they said, well, what do you think? And I said, there's value in that. That's beautiful. It's extraordinary. But there's also value in being a teaching artist and being a teacher who may not create but also teaches, but but teaches it, or only teaches it, but doesn't have their own kind of art making process. Um, and I said, I don't think there needs to be a right or wrong. I think we're called to different things. So yes, I love the artists that are able to do that full time. God bless them. That's beautiful. I love teachers who are able to teach art and music, but don't create or act or participate in that. For me, I sit squarely in between both. 
I, I would not be the artist I am without being a te- with teaching it. And I would not be uh, the teacher I am without, you know, uh, creating it and being creative in it. And so um, I'm really grateful I'm an emancipatory artist. But I think in that story lies the tensions and lies the different things. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to who God has called you to be and who you feel most comfortable in, in um, creating. Um, I would say what it looks like to, really, I'm feeling convicted. I need to answer your question. Um, spot on would be that it's, um, it's, it's beauty and it's creativity that does not go outside of the studio or outside mm-hmm. of the composer's notes or outside of the dance studio in a different way. Uh-huh. So that doesn't mean that the work can't be emancipatory. Uh-huh. It just means that the creator of the work, the ones stay in that creative space and don't go outside. So like you're talking talk about, about issues of, of justice and truth and that's mm-hmm. okay. But I okay. want to be real clear. I think my hesitation was that I want to be really clear. It doesn't mean that the, the creation or the creative works isn't emancipatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing that came to, to if, even as, as I asked the question, and I, I felt like that was a hard question. I really put you on the spot. Forgive me. No, that's okay. But as I started trying to answer the question for myself, one, one thing I thought about was there's a kind of art that only gives people what they already think they want. And that's not going to set anybody free, right? That, that doesn't emancipate anybody. If I already know what I want, you know, and then there's, there's a kind of art that says, you didn't know you wanted this, but here's what you need. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's an art that provokes, that pushes, you know, um, James Baldwin goes pretty strong. He says, you know, the role, I'm paraphrasing, the role of the artist is to vomit up all the anguish. Hmm. Um, and usually that's the emancipatory and that's what you're touching <laughs> on to tell the truth. Not that it has to all be dark, um, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say even in that, in the midst of that, I think that even if it's art, we all go towards music. We like music, something, you know, that doesn't necessarily push us. But I think even in those nuances, at the end of the day, it's not, we don't judge art, art judges us. And I think even if it's subconsciously buried deep down inside, we know which art we stay away from and we know why. Uh, Yeah. And so continuing to view the same art that makes us comfortable is rejecting that, you know, like you said, of wanting to be pushed or inspired to yeah. move further to deeper waters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you were talking a minute ago about, you know, this, this um, uh, anguish and despair on the one hand and joy on the other. It sounded like you were talking about the blues or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, and now I'm going back to your, to your talk from Hutchmood in 2019, mm-hmm. you, you pointed out that, that all of um, American music, grows out of or is is in some way descended from the African-American spiritual. And I'd I'd love to to hear you say more about that. And and specifically one, one image that you, that really stuck with me, you know, we're now what well over a year away from that conversation, but I've thought about it uh, 
more than once mm-hmm. since then is this the idea that what if those um, enslaved Africans in America could know <laughs> what what their music has given rise to, you know, Jonathan. rock and roll music and jazz and and everything, and, you know, country music for that matter. Yeah, we just lost Charlie Pride. Devastated. Mm. I just mm. did a lecture on him. Oh, really? Yeah. Jonathan, I escaped by not, probably you can hear it, not crying. Now you're really going to make me <laughs> fail. I, I can't say that statement without tearing up. Um, you know, besides the lunchings, besides the stripes on the back from the whip, besides the scraps that were fed to them, besides the hard labor, besides their bodies bearing that anguish, that violence, that trauma, that assault on God, that assault the assault on the first and greatest artist who created out of nothing. Besides all of that, they would not stop singing. <laughs> and if you know African culture, you understand why in history. But they would not stop singing. You know, Archives tell us that most of the masters thought, oh, they're singing, they're happy. Aren't I a good master? I've done well. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm rough on them, but they understand. They're happy. They're singing. And, you know, Frederick Douglass has that famous quote, slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, so these dirges, these melodies, these harmonies, these creative layering of notes and assembly of notes became the root of almost all American music from the most despised human being on American soil. It's extraordinary and it's terrible. I wish they could hear how their melodies turned into blues and jazz rock and roll and country, part of folk music, not all, because we know that as, you know, the Scots came, they brought their stunning ancient melodies with them, the Irish, you know, the Italian. So folk music, but that'll be the root of almost all, if not all, American music. And not, not so much just American. You can't turn on the radio without hearing their music embedded in the genres, but around the world. I've been blessed that my music has taken me around the world. So even in the midst of not being viewed and seen and valued as equal injustice issues, or because even having to ask that question, was that done because I'm an African-American? In the midst of that, swirling around in the airport, swirling around everywhere we go, is the essence of their music, of their creation around the world. So, yes, it's extraordinary that as America, I guess maybe we're entering or in mid-stage or maybe exiting our toddler years in comparison to the other countries and nations, um, that birth on the soul in darkness, total, one of the most terrible times in American history, that God again 
brought beauty out of that and that it touches worldwide. These genres aren't just only in American soul. It's around the world. You look and say, what is Asian rap sounding like? <laughs> Blues in Prague, you know, country yeah. music in, you know, Russia. It's extraordinary. And it's a testament to America, but it absolutely, positively, without any shadow of doubt, homage to those that endured, that those that uh, were not free. I wish they were here to hear their music. Fruit, 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 fruit. I love that image of the walk around the airport and hear these voices, you know? Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. Uh, okay. One of the big questions I wanted to ask, which we're not going to have much time to explore, but maybe you'll have a couple of things to say about it. Since you're a, uh, you're a, you were like the professor of jazz at care. Uh, I'm sorry. How do you pronounce Karen? Oh, Karen. Yes. Karen, yeah. Karen. Um, so you're a jazz professor, jazz whiz. Talk to me about the idea of, you know, jazz as an improvisational art. What does that can you make some connections with the creative process for non-jazz art, right? Because I think of writing, like this is a, a podcast about writing. I know we've been talking about music the whole time. Um, but, you know, I, you think of writing, what I, I tend to is being the opposite of improvisation. You sit in a room by yourself and you take your time and you make sure it's real. But I also have, have learned um, improvisation uh Writers have a lot to to learn from improvisers. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I say writers, really anybody who makes art of any kind. Right. Um, Sure. You know, what is jazz? Well, we could go down the road of history to sum it up. Jazz was birthed in protest. It was, it's, it's music of protest. So we talked about that. So it's extraordinary just by that alone. Right. Um, but really what jazz is, is a conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a democratic music, not the party, um, <laughs> but it's a democratic music in the way that everyone has a, a voice in it. So there's a theme and everyone plays the theme or helps bring that theme to the forefront, um, yeah. accompanies it. And then everyone at a moment at times has a chance to expound upon that theme. These are my thoughts and here's my thoughts. So it's a conversation. It's, it's a, a language It's a communication. And then we all come back to the theme and it ends. So it's really powerful. It's, it's a way that you can really create. You can be part of a community. You can be part of a team, part of an ensemble, but you have a chance to really also then talk about what, you feel and your feelings on it. And sometimes uh-huh. like bebop, it, you don't have to connect to what the person said behind. I mean, the music is there. So that, that foundation is there, but it's, it's really about that sense. And, and in the sense to create on your own and create in the moment, you, you don't sit down and write out your solo. You, you mm-hmm. feel it. So you're, what you have to say changes each night. Sure. The notes are there. Cause you have to stay within the chord structure mm-hmm. and everything else. Yeah. But you, you're able to create and say the same things over and over again. I also think of, I, I, I always think of Billie Holiday. How do you sing Strange Fruit each night? You know, and then, you know, just the subject of that um, mm-hmm. and how that changed the tune. It helped emancipate people from what they thought 
mm-hmm. what's going on with lunching and stuff. But then also, what would you have to do if you had to sing somewhere over the rainbow um, every night? You would change it. You would change the meter. You would change the key. You would change the approach. You would change the dynamics. You would change how you sang it, mm-hmm. how you had articulated your volume, all these things. And so that's what really jazz is. But in the sense of improvisation, we as Christians should own jazz. Um, you know, I have the honor of being director of jazz studies at Karen University. Um, and it was really powerful for me because it meant that Christians were able to, to create in an improvisational way, but then also that there was this sense that there's a place to improvise, to create on the spot in the midst of this theological community in this place Mm -hmm. of study. Um, And that's why, that's why I said yes. That's why I became a professor there 15 years ago. And that's why I was willing to take the helm because we need that improvisation in love and truth and beauty and certainly in justice. But we look at the Bible. In the beginning, God created, improvised, but the greatest, the greatest jazz solo. And I love Coltrane. I love Miles Davis. I love Sarah Vaughn. I love the new jazz musicians who are here who are doing powerful work. But the greatest jazz solo ever performed, but more uttered, demonstrated, was the cross. Because Jonathan, it should have been you and I there. Mm -hmm. And God said, no, I'll go down and die. And so... You know, I get in trouble with theologians, but it was prophesied in the Old Testament that it would happen. It wasn't. <laughs> and I was like, look, <laughs> he was there and it should have been us. And so throughout all scripture, when you think through it, there's so much improvisation that Christians should be the ones that are the, the ones that are embracing it. And I'm not saying every Christian has to embrace jazz, but that feeling of improvisation is should be there you know i um, am thinking of that quote from uh from our great one i remember when i was and i'm sorry i'm going on you can tell that i'm passionate about this but i remember as a um young person young artist barely out of my teens hearing the artists older artists that i really meant like they were struggling with can i be a christian and an artist i thought that was so bizarre and i would go to all these talks and say what why are we even bringing up this dichotomy of this tension? Like the first and great God first introduces himself as an artist. Genesis one, one, not a savior, not as Lord, not as father as an artist. So why is there um, the, this tension, but they really tensioned now that I'm older, I understood why, but I would say, you know, Francis Schaeffer says it's best. The Christian is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars. And so I hope you love jazz. I hope I hope the listeners will run towards it. But if not, certainly run towards improvisation in terms of imagination. Yeah. Improvisation requires some faith, right? It, it yeah. requires me not having this all figured out before Absolutely. I, before I, I yeah. utter a syllable. And that's what jazz is, especially when you improvise a solo. You're jumping off a mountain without a parachute. Now you have tools, you've studied, you know music theory, you know jazz theory, you know how it works, but still it's a risk because it's not on the printed page. It's a risk. 
And there's joy in that. So that's why I love that quote, because, you know, if we're going to fly beyond the stars, like you said, we have to have faith that we can, and that we can yeah. flap our wings and by God's <laughs> grace, uh, we'll get there. Yeah. Hey, tell me r- real quick, because um, uh, I know we're running out of time, but this project you've been on, Frederick Douglass Jazz Works, can you tell me about that a little bit? Sure. Um, Frederick Douglass uh you know, I've studied, I sing African-American spiritual, I sing gospel, I sing jazz, and I really wanted to go to the root. And in studying the, the race issue in America, I, I knew it in the sense of the historical timeline, but I thought I need to go to the root. I, you know, I love James Baldwin and I love all those great, amazing Langston Hughes and all those, yeah. those cats, if you will. <laughs> um, but I thought I need to go to the root. And certainly think of the root as Harriet Tubman, but she didn't have a lot of writings. And I started with Frederick Douglass, just trying to, to find a different layer, different layers and nuances of this race issue in America. Well, I mean, Frederick Douglass is amazing. And so his words are prophetic. It says if he's still living here today and he, no one can run away from his touch of his words. And so mm-hmm. Um, after studying him for eight years, and it was just an independent study and research, and I do mean research, like research around the world, going places, talking with scholars, mm-hmm. all that, I thought, oh, I'm going to tidy up. And long st- story, very short, was that music started coming to some of his words. Hmm. What's this? Wow. And I oh, put three songs together, and I thought that was it. Well, it kept coming. So we have the Frederick Douglass Jazz Works, where every lyric that I sing are the actual words of Frederick Douglass. So it's not like a musical kind of, nothing's wrong with musicals, but the life of and times of Frederick Douglass is just actually actual, actual words that he is speaking, um, that he speaks. And so it's powerful. Um, yeah. It's powerful because it's as if he was still here. It's extraordinary. Uh, his, his prophetic um, voice and a prophet and just amazing man, amazing yeah. man that speaks to, I would say every single person in America. Uh, yeah. He has something to say to you that will convict you and, and encourage you. Um, extraordinary. Well, I'm glad you're giving us another reason to uh, revisit his work. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you're, you're recording You're are you currently recording? You've been performing it or I guess pre COVID or, yeah, but you never. But are you? There's going to be a recording available to people in the future. Yes, COVID interrupted. We had our world premiere at the prestigious um, Barnes uh, Foundation, and then had a West Coast um, premiere at Biola University, mm-hmm. and then took it abroad to the UK a little bit. Um, and then we recorded the first round of recording, um, and that was amazing. And then COVID hit. Um, so we're hoping uh, when it's safe to go back in to do the second round, we'll be okay. um, doing violin, banjo, additional voices, fife, and a couple other things. Oh, wow. Woodshed. Um, uh, is that what it is? The wood, uh, the laundry. Uh, what's it called? Oh, the, uh, yeah, the, the washboard. Washboard, not woodshed. Sorry. Washboard. Yeah. So we'll do that. And then we'll make semester. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping spring or summer, probably realistically now knowing the numbers and what's going on, vaccines and all, hopefully, hopefully by the fall, I feel like I've been 
pregnant for 19 months <laughs> ready to give birth to this yeah, right. you know it's been an eight to ten year journey of just research so yeah. i'm sorry you're talking about fall of 21 for release or for just yes, getting in the studio and for releasing well i hope here's hope oh please pray <laughs> <laughs> all right can uh, i say one quote that i love of oh, Frederick please, Douglass? Please and do. i encourage everyone please 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 yes the story is extraordinary but you really get to know Frederick Douglass and you really get to know America in this issue of race through his writing. So he has three biographies and he has so many, but it's really his speeches. Okay. Here's one that I love. 1862, before the Emancipation Proclamation, this is what he says. There is a prophet within us forever whispering that behind the scene lies the immeasurable unseen. I think that's what we've been talking about in some ways through this whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ruth, my last question I always ask is who are the writers who make you want to write for you? We can, we can adjust this. Who are the, who are the artists who make you want to make art? (sighs) Well, I grew up in a household where we only were allowed to listen to European classical music (laughs) instrumentally. um, And then also opera and then gospel. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I will give an example of, from each. Um, okay. You know, I grew up, my father's favorite singer, Lentine Price. I still listen to her all the time, as well as other opera singers. Um, you know, Beethoven, we're celebrating 250 years of him, but I also mm-hmm. love Rachmaninoff. He's one of my favorite, Dvorak. Um, writers, uh, you know, in the sense of jazz, I named some. Certainly Mary uh, Lou Williams. Uh, and then finally, as for writers, you know, it's going to sound so corny, but I love Shakespeare. I've been able yeah. to go to the first theater in the UK where it was, where it was performed in its hometown. Very profound. And I, I guess, um, obviously, Frederick Douglass. But if there's a writer that really continues to have us glance back at the past but pushes us forward, it's Jimmy Baldwin. James uh, Baldwin. Yeah. He is an artist who refused to not live in the tensions. He took them straight on. And so mm-hmm. I think Christians can learn from him in a, in a really profound way. Yeah. All right. Ruth Naomi Floyd, this has been so much fun. Thank you for making time for me. And I just love talking to you. Well, I'm a fan. I became a fan of yours a while ago, but now I'm a real fan. So I'm glad to meet <laughs> someone I really admire and love. Thank you for what you do. Well, you feed you, us. I'm very serious about that. It may sound like a compliment, but the in, in reality, it's the truth. So thank you for feeding us. And well, thank you, us. Ruth. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.